Hi, I'm Sydney. And I'm Haley. And this week's episode on physical oceanography is Is to dive dive for. So for today's, I guess this week's fish news, um, there's been some articles coming out lately, and it's actually been a topic on a lot of talk shows and news channels as well. But there's been about seven whale strandings in the past um, couple weeks around New Jersey and New York, like Long Island area. And There's been a little bit of a controversy among people trying to figure out what's causing this. And there's one group that believes that the offshore wind farms that have recently been built by like the um, New York Bight area between New York and New Jersey, that that could be causing the whale deaths. Huh. What does the science say? Yeah, so I looked into NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's press releases on this and also some of the marine rescue organizations around the area. And they said that there's actually been an unusual mortality event in the Northern Atlantic for whales for the past seven years. So we've been having a large number of whale deaths to begin with. And then also there's been larger report or greater reports of whales in the area, which scientists think is a sign that the populations are increasing. Oh, that's good. So it could just be that there's more whales in the area, so we're going to find more dead whales washing up. Yeah. But out of those whales that have died from this unusual mortality event, 40% of them have been from ship strikes. Hmm. And because there's lots of big shipping channels around the area, but then they can also be killed by entanglement in fishing gear as well. So one of the seven recently dead whales they know for a fact was killed by a vessel strike. So they're still doing necropsies and going over the uh, whale bodies to figure out what exactly caused their deaths. But nothing has shown any linkage to offshore wind farms. So I just thought this was a really interesting piece to just encourage everyone to really research and look at where your sources are when looking at this information and going directly to the source. So looking at, in this case, the marine stranding networks that responded to these whales and NOAA and all these organizations that are really there firsthand. Yeah, especially I know a lot of articles or journal articles that will, um, like non-scientific journal articles that publish things about scientific studies that have been done will really oversimplify things in an effort to make it more consumable for more people, which is, you know, a good thing to do to be able to break it down for people. But really, it's important, obviously, to go back to the actual source and see what they were saying, because a lot of times in that oversimplification, the meaning of that science Mm -hmm. can get lost altogether. Yeah, and there might be some bias. Like in this case, it sounds like the people that are linking it to offshore wind farms are trying to... um, like diminish um, sustainable energy and renewable energy sources and are trying to kind of... uh, Favor oil and gas things. Yeah. Gotcha. So just keep that in mind. Everyone has bias and look into your sources and do your due diligence. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing. Yeah. All right. Well, without 
further ado, we will introduce this week's guest. Um, this guest is one of our close friends and also just an incredible scientist. We're so excited to have her on. Special guest, would you introduce yourself? Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Caroline Woodward. I am a master's student here at Harbor Ranch Oceanographic, and you two are like my favorites. So. Aww. <laughs> okay, what are your pronouns, if you wouldn't mind real quick? Sure, I go by she, her. Great. And where are you from and where do you live now? What do you, you know, tell us a little about yourself. I'm Florida born and raised, so I came here from New Smyrna Beach, and now I live in Fort Pierce, Florida, and have been here for officially over two years, which is fun. Oh, that's awesome. She said she lives in in Fort Pierce, but really she lives in the ocean, basically. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Less and less these days as we try to get closer to all three of us, our dissertation defenses. So um, hopefully we get more of that soon. Yeah, definitely. Well, that kind of brings us right along. Yeah. So at the beginning of every podcast, we ask, what drew you to the water? I think I was kind of pushed in. <laughs> like, I literally, grew up, absolutely. My parents were, you know, every day we were surfing, we were fishing, we were always on or around the water in some capacity. And so that it just was always a part of who I've been my entire mm-hmm. life. And then you feel that sense of connection to it. And um, I've never left. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Oh, yeah I'm <laughs> very <just> lucky. <laughs> okay. So, what is your current job or position just like a broad overview what do you do what do you study all of our jobs right oh, like yes. all of the positions we have i feel like there's so many um officially i am um a research assistant in the Ocean Dynamics and Modeling Lab, so primarily physical oceanography. I also have a second job where I live on the winery as a server, but maybe that's less interesting. (laughs) No, that's that's super interesting because a lot, like, you'll start to notice, listeners, over the course of our podcast that a lot of the people we interview have multiple jobs, and that... um, is a common theme within the dive and marine science industry, especially early on, where we just either are very interested in pursuing multiple different pathways like Sydney is with her, you know, title T's on the side, or additionally just need additional sources of income, or even for me, like instructing, I really like having um, an opportunity to be making an impact in the community. And so while it is an extra source of income, it also acts as kind of a It fulfills a different part of my goals and desires. So um, a lot of people that we interview will have multiple jobs, and that's something to kind of keep in mind if you're looking to get into this field. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, though, right? Because this is just, like, for grad students just Mm -hmm. getting a master's, it's just, quote, a two-year program, you know, sometimes longer than that, like, as needed for sure. But we all are, like, it sounds so straightforward and simple in such a small slice of time, but the way that we're all making it happen for ourselves, like, that's why I'm like, which job are you talking about? Because I feel like all of us have so many hats. We're all involved in so many different things. And y'all also, on top of your jobs, volunteer a lot of your time. So Mm -hmm. it looks different from everyone. And I think that really adds to, like, each of our depths, pun intended. Yeah. (laughs) Ocean puns. Yes. Okay, so you said you're... You do physical oceanography. Mm-hmm. 
What the heck is that? What does that mean? <laughs> Definitely not biological. So, but I think that's fun. Um, so physical oceanography, we're looking at ocean dynamics. We're looking at, um, you know, current processes. We do a lot of measurements using what we call acoustic Doppler current profiler, or ADCP, which is using sound to measure discharge flow dynamics and we use tools like this to be able to identify not just like the general comings and goings like like tidal processes but also those mesoscale processes right so looking at eddy formations shedding um different aspects of what really we tie to the biological processes right so it's like intersectional almost yeah yeah yeah, so a lot of measuring stuff and yelling at instruments. I, there's a lot of wrestling instruments in oh physical gosh. oceanography. <laughs> I love that. And yes. then we helped you with some of the fieldwork days for your project. Will you explain to everyone what your thesis is on and what your research is? Yeah, so that's actually a really good example for that intersectionality between the physical and biological elements in oceanography. So. I'm looking at whether, so here on the east coast of Florida, and especially in Fort Pierce, we're particularly close to the Gulf Stream. It gets very close to us here, and so it has a great effect on different processes for our area. And so um, what we're looking at is whether or not meanders from the Gulf Stream as shearing happens along the boundaries and um, eddies form and intrusion start to make their way towards our inlet here in Fort Pierce, Mm -hmm. whether or not larval fishes use those as conduits into their settlement habitat. Okay. And just to kind of give like a little background, um, many marine fishes, they spawn offshore and then enter what's called their pelagic larval duration or PLD, the amount of time that they spend in their early larval stages at sea continuing to develop and then a lot of this because they're so small they don't have fully developed musculature and navigational skills a lot of that is passive right so they're dependent on these currents to take them to what's known as their settlement habitats places like reefs or estuaries like our inlet leads to here Mm -hmm. um, where they then develop into adults so we're trying to identify different mechanisms by which they enter those habitats okay yeah that's super interesting yeah i feel like that's a good example of physical oceanography and i mean honestly in order to I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I feel like in order to be a good physical oceanographer, you have to have some understanding of biological and or chemical implications of that physical oceanography, right? So like a lot of it is interdisciplinary in that way. Would you agree? 100%. And that goes in the opposite way too. Like if you want to understand what's happening with either the chemical or biological processes, then you need to understand how the physics ties into that. It's It's a whole picture. And I think that's what if we can generalize and call ourselves ecologists, the fun of it is mm-hmm. it's not just one siloed tiny thing. We're a little more broad than that. And yeah. that's exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. So that was a lot of big words. <laughs> I, I think Haley and I got it, but <laughs> just just in case, can you um, explain it to us like we were five years old? Yes, I can try. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen these on like social media, but it's like I think you you always yeah. have a good example. Yeah. Well, I I saw like a a cartoon sometime that essentially was like some entomologist, which is someone who studies bugs or insects, or I'm sure I'm broadly simplifying that. But um, 
they basically said like, oh yeah, me and all my friends, we really like butterflies. And every year, like we learn as many cool facts as we can about butterflies. And then we all go and meet up in cool places and tell each other all the things we learned that year about butterflies. And it's like really great. And I, I think about my <laughs> life in that lens all the time. Like, oh yeah, me and all my friends, we really like corals. So I, yeah. I just think it's such a beautiful way to think about it, but also simplifies it a lot more. So in kind of a simplistic, doesn't have to mm-hmm. be that simplistic, but. No, but sure. That's like, uh, for me, one of the hardest parts is like communicating science effectively. So that's a really good point to bring up of like, how would you convey this to just anyone? So I don't always think about that first. It's it's a struggle, but. That's okay. Yeah. So um, we're just looking to see how the Gulf Stream is a part of the process for larval settlement. So little baby fishes have to just kind of hope and pray that they make it where they need to get to in order to develop into adults. And they can't control that. They can mostly just swim up and down when they're that young. They can't swim (laughs) side to side as much. But if you can control where you're going up and down... And then if we look at these streams as like a highway, then they can select to get in or out of that highway to make it where they need to go. That's awesome. And That's you, super interesting. So... You don't have to depend on yourself to swim there. You're like, we'll just, it's like a people mover at the Universal Studios or something. Yeah. <laughs> you watch baby fish yes. travel on highways. Yes. We're seeing if they're <laughs> on the highway. I'm... I'm the speed trap. I'm the cop. Perfect. Um, we're monitoring who's going by and how often. <laughs> in the toll booth. Yeah. And honestly, they haven't paid me a thing. <laughs> so rude. They paid me an experience. <laughs> the baby fishes. The baby yes. fishes. Oh my goodness. Okay, so I know that you are obviously, just like we are, in the middle of your master's degree, your master's candidate, getting ready to defend your master's thesis, yeah? Any day now. Any day, (laughs) with any luck. Any month. We'll all get there. Next year. Um, But what kind of a education do you feel like you need to really be in this field? Do you feel like a master's degree is pretty typical, or do you feel like you can do with a bachelor's degree, or are you thinking of going for a PhD? What kinds of education do you think is Mm -hmm. typical? So I never intended to even finish my bachelor's. I took a pause for six years and then, you know, but of course to do what you really want to do. I was like, oh, I can be involved in my community, whatever. For me, um, it wasn't enough. I wanted to be more involved on the science side, which does require credibility. Like you have to get at least some baseline credential. And the more that you have, the more credible the results of your science are. And, And that makes sense, right? To be able to say how much can I put into the results of this study? How much can I feel confident in this output based on this person's credentials, right? Yeah. yeah. So when I was finishing my bachelor's, I did um, actually Jeff Beal, who mm-hmm. was in FWC through here at Harbor Branch. He's how I got here. I was volunteering to collect data for a different master's student who I never met. Oh. Yep, up at um, in Flagler doing restored uh, shorelines. And he was like, if you really want any kind of meaningful job, you're going to at least have to get a master's. And I was livid. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, when does this end? But honestly, like, I think it's it depends on what you want. And it's not necessary in some capacities. However, I will say getting at least a master's, 
this was coming into this program was when I finally felt like I don't need to finish to succeed. I'm already doing the thing, yes. right? The, yeah. the connections, mm-hmm. the networking, the experience, the... This has been the most rapid growth in my life, the amount that I have learned and the quality. And maybe that's just like my individual experience. I think there's so much to be said for what you can get from it's it's a it's a gateway into being a true, like active part of the scientific community. And so I I will herald at least a master's. But if you can find a way to not get into the education system, (laughs) sure, do it. Like, absolutely. I don't I don't think it's for everyone. And I don't like to say it's the only way, but there is inherent value. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that um, a lot of people who aren't in the scientific field don't understand that as a master's of science, like as a, a student pursuing a master's of science, um, oftentimes you're getting paid, as Sydney and I have expressed probably before, yeah. you're getting paid to do your job, not a lot, but some. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways that makes, like for example, my our job, Sydney and me, are supposed to be here like from nine to five. We have a office, we have a desk, we have, right? Yep. So it is kind of like we're already in the field. Like we are doing the job. We're getting paid yeah. to do the job as you are, right? You're mm-hmm. getting paid to do what you want to do. So in a lot of ways, although this is a degree, we still do take some classes, et cetera. Um, and at the end of two years, we'll walk away with the paper. We are still getting paid currently to do the job that we want to do. So it it feels like the best of both worlds to me. Yeah. And your work is directly contributing to the scientific community, to like everyone's growth. Right. And I also think even if you're, maybe you're not a master's student, but I would, you know, if you're interested in research, if you're interested in even field work or anything, there are skills you're going to get just from that exposure. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the amount that I've learned from my colleagues, like being in the field with y'all, being in the field with Greer, like our other friends on their projects and stuff, has helped me grow so much in being a more effective scientist. Even if I just had a bachelor's, I think if yeah. I were to like volunteer and come and help with anyone else's project, like I was up in Flagler. That the amount you gain from that yes. is so valuable mm-hmm. and it happens so quickly. Things you wouldn't think of until you're in it. So it's still worth it to get that exposure. Whether you're pursuing the degree or not, just get your hands dirty. Like put your fingers in the pot. Like just get in there. Yeah, that's one of the things that I always say I like the most about like scientific diving and also mm-hmm. um, researching as a grad student is we get to hop on all these different projects and like I had no clue what you were doing before I hopped on the boat and I got to help sample little larval fish and just like diving and retrieving instruments with some of our other friends. Like you just get exposed to so many new types of science and types Mm -hmm. of diving that Mm -hmm. I think that's one of my favorite parts about this field. Yeah. Or like even the small things that you wouldn't think of, like when we're diving on instruments that don't have like a surface marker or whatever. Yeah. And you go with friends who more like, okay, we just found this on a hope and a prayer. And you've got one person who's like, we're going to tie this buoy to it while we work so if we get separated we can come right back and I'm like and these are simple things I wouldn't have thought of otherwise you know like and now I'm taking this with me and I do it every time it's just even the little things are just Mm -hmm. like in my pocket now yeah I'm gonna remember this forever yeah it makes your life easier you're a more effective scientist or employee or volunteer or whatever well and I think that's part of why 
your credibility increases when you have more degrees is that you've presumably had these experiences mm-hmm. and you can you can create a project design and implement um, a certain study in a way that you know is going to be effective based on previous research and based on previous failures. And then you can analyze that data more effectively based on how you did it last time and, oh, that didn't really work that mm-hmm. well. And so just building that experience of the whole process from start to finish, I feel like is is really where the benefit and the credibility of having more degrees comes from you know 100 percent. and like you're you're just gonna get better as you go on in time and even as I like finish my thesis I'm like okay yeah I'm gonna write up what I have now but I like told my advisor this past week I'm like but we're redoing this like I I have better ideas I know what we're gonna do with it next time I don't want to let this go we're gonna come back and we're gonna be even better about it and I really want to answer these questions more robustly you know like so as you go even just doing the thing and messing up mm-hmm. yeah I've, I've i mean we've all seen it and we've all been that person like in the field of okay i've just made this colossal mistake this has blown the whole like field day or whatever this mm-hmm. is not going to be useful guess what you're learning yeah. like yeah. you're a student we are all students forever if you want to be in this field and now i'm better for this mistake yeah and that's a hard thing to learn but once you're in it and you're just like you know what? It's okay that this happened. It's okay that I made this mistake. I'm not going to implode until maybe later when I'm by myself. And then uh, come back the next time and be even better. You're like, I now have this extra skill set. It's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that brings up two important things. First of all, your little aside of like, until maybe later when I'm alone. (laughs) I think it's super important to recognize, and it's something that is not talked about a lot, that Like, science is hard, and there are lots of very hard days, especially as a student, especially when you're learning. There's a lot of imposter syndrome, and um, it's okay. Like, you're not alone. We're all all struggling. We're all in it together. And that's the importance of building a close-knit community with the people around you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, like, one of the most important parts of that too is like y'all know me I'm a little bit of a loner until I'm ready to come out and Mm -hmm. like be about or whatever but like befriend your colleagues and talk to them because as soon as you recognize we're all having the same experience yeah we all have imposter syndrome and these are some of like the most brilliant people that I know are saying these things and I'm like no but you're my idol like I want to be like you and then you're telling me you have imposter syndrome like shoot I got this in the bag I want to be like you (laughs) exactly we're all like each other's biggest fans and it's but also whenever we do need to take a step back whenever we do need to be like I got to take time for myself. I got to do, go into hermit mode and and do whatever I need to do. Your colleagues go, been there, done that. I understand. And they respect the boundaries. And that's also super valuable, Mm -hmm. which is what I found here with y'all as well. So I think finding those people is very important to your success overall. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Creating a good community to Take advantage on. of having all these people around you that are going through the same shared experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't don't make yourself into an island. I'm most prone to do that. But, like, I, it was something I talked to my therapist this morning. It was, like, people can be, like, your lifeline back. 
Yeah. You know, like they're what, like what, even if it's in like a very small way, you can do what you need to do and keep to yourself. But when you just reach out, hi, how are you? Like, yeah. okay, I'm back to reality as well. Little check in. Yeah. Because I feel like mental health in the scientific community is, especially folks who want to work in conservation like yeah. us, you know, it can mm-hmm. be doomy and gloomy yep. quite often. So yep. it's important to have those little, little markers, little checkpoints in your community. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Well, the second thing that I thought you brought up that I'd love to get into is you were talking a whole lot about diving. So like, (laughs) what? Tell us more. (laughs) Is this a diving podcast? (laughs) Yeah. So I've always wanted to go diving and it's something that like my dad and I always promised that we would do. And then, but I was always surfing and fishing. And if I had a day off, like, especially when I got older, I was like, if I can just surf with my free time. I'm going to do that. So I actually am a relatively new diver. I started 2020, July of 2020. You would never know it though. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like we grew up in the water. But yeah, no. I So Haley, you've been my instructor. Yes. Before. (laughs) So yeah, open water up with Keith and New Smyrna. If anyone's interested, it's an amazing program he's an amazing instructor and then you got me my advanced in my nitrox and then now I'm a scientific diver through harbor branch and my project has involved a lot of I think we were what is it the max was like 12 dives in four days just like 6 a.m 6 p.m back to back was super your entire year to maintain (laughs) AAUS certification you have to dive at least 12 times on that certification Mm -hmm. within a year so you literally accomplish an entire year's worth of AUS dives in four days. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you, <laughs> you so much. I like realized I was so far behind on my dive logs and I went back to like fill them all out and it was like 30 something that I was missing. And then I emailed Jimmy, our yeah. um, dive and safety officer, and I was like, sorry, no, you miss me. Here's all these dives for you to look at. <laughs> my bad. Oh my goodness. Will you walk us through like one of those long field days? I know we helped out with some of the dives, but just to give everyone an idea of like how crazy (laughs) this can be. Yeah. So um, I guess I should probably give a little background on what we were doing on the um, like for the field days. So I created three tiered larval light traps. So baby fishes are attracted to lights. So I figure I'll attract them to these traps, figure out who's there. If we have them three-tiered, we can sample at different depths. And see who's going up and who's going down. Exactly. Who's in the tunnel and who's on the flyover. Yes, exactly. <laughs> who's who's just on the little bypass. So we um, would have to, we were sampling day and night, so we changed the traps every 12 hours. And there were two sites, which means that I made four sets of traps total. Two to have out, two to have back to be changed out. So... Um, once they're set, then my day looked like waking up at about 4.30, somewhere between 4.30 and 5 a.m., getting to the marina and resetting the backup traps. So I've got my glow sticks I'm adding to them, putting all the equipment. We have a bunch of jars of alcohol for um, sampling and preserving the larvae with a permit, of course. Yeah, so we'd leave the marina by 6 and be diving into the water on the first site by sun up. Takes about 45 minutes to get to the first site. Um, And then that's a bounce dive, right? So we would go down, uh, release the trap so it would get up to the surface and the boat would retrieve it. And then we would come back up for the second trap. 
and then go and reset it down at the bottom and move on to the second site, all the while in between preserving the samples from each individual trap. And then 6 p.m. comes around, so like middle of the day, I might sit on the floor and eat a sandwich and try to take a nap. (laughs) And then, um, yeah, we'd be right back on the boat by 6 after resetting everything and do the same thing. Two bounce dives at two sites and... Uh, We came up with a new system that wouldn't require as much diving by the end of it, just because we're, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm the only person in my lab, so it's kind of hard to wrangle people in to help. Um, And then I did get bucked off the boat during that process one day. (laughs) Oh, good. Yeah. Well, so it's hard to dive in like rough conditions and that limited us a whole bunch. So yeah, we were like, we can go out in these rough conditions if we're not diving. I got bucked off the boat and that's very embarrassing to say out loud, but it's too funny not to share my like PFD inflated. (laughs) After every episode, we want to post like a bunch of pictures and videos Mm -hmm. from the day. (laughs) That's one we might need to. My advisor has that. I'll have to ask him for that picture. (laughs) I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is so, and meanwhile, they're, they're using a winch pulling up my concrete moorings, holding things. So it's like a safety issue. And they legit are just like, we'll get to you in a second. And so I'm holding onto the side of the boat while they finish in like semi-storm conditions. I'm like, this is fine. Like my my, um, inflatable just kept filling. So my face is like squishing as I can hear the whistling in my ears of it still filling. And they're just trying to work and not lose their minds laughing. Yeah. So, you know, it gets interesting. Every day is different. Yeah, (laughs) truly it is. Yeah. I think, I think it's so important to note too, that with all of this work, there are like so many different safety considerations that happen. And I think that's another thing that I've learned a lot throughout my master's degree is not just like failures in like, oh man, I messed up the scientific piece, but I'll do it better next time. But also a ton of the learning for me has been in the safety realm. So just like, Mm -hmm. wow, this thing could have gone really wrong and it almost did. Mm -hmm. Here's how I can fix it next time so that I don't maybe encounter the same almost bad thing, right? Like, luckily we have all come back safe on everything. It's such a good point though, because like, I I think especially if you're like, I don't don't want to seem weak. I don't want to seem like I can't do this, whatever. We've had dives and a good partner will say this, as you guys know, Mm -hmm. where one person isn't feeling comfortable with the conditions Mm -hmm. and they pause, like they don't want to call it. They don't want to be that person, but like it is okay to call a dive if it comes to it. And that should be talked about more. Especially with like the major pressure with getting like deliverables done and getting Mm -hmm. your data done. I feel like that's such a big issue, especially like in scientific diving. Yeah. I mean, so much planning goes into it, like trying to figure out in advance, like, you know, do we have the team together? Do we have everything we need? Are the conditions correct? Blah, blah, blah. And sometimes it's just not going to fall into place and like not beating yourself up about being realistic about what you can and can't do is actually a strength. Yes. Not a weakness. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, Yeah, and I always teach my open water students, like, you can cancel any dive at any time for any reason. Mm -hmm. Anybody can, right? Like, there's no rules about it. It doesn't have to be like, oh, well, this person with more experience says it's safe, so I guess it's safe. Like, if you don't feel safe, then call it, you know? And I think that that's really, really important. Um, I was actually out on a boat a couple months ago, and I... (laughs) I was diving with my dive shop and I was out fun diving. I didn't, I wasn't 
teaching or guiding or anything. (laughs) And uh, it was after some storms. And, like, I had been diving throughout, like, the post-hurricane water. So the Mm -hmm. the water was, like, really, really mucky. There was no visibility. And I had just been doing that, like, a few weeks prior to this. So I am out on the boat. And everyone's like, oh, the vis has been really bad. And I was like, oh, whatever. Like, I've done it a million times. It's not a big deal. I just want to go get in the water. And I get in the water, and it's like an 80-foot dive. And so I'm descending, descending, descending. I can, like, see other divers' bubbles, but I can't see anyone around me. And I'm dropping, and I'm dropping, and I'm dropping. And I get to, like, 40 feet, and I still can't see anyone at all. Mm -hmm. And I just, like, had this moment in my head where I was like, you know what? I'm going to just call it. I'm just going to do it. And so I I went back up to the surface and, like, Meanwhile, the boat circles back around and comes and picks me up and is like, is everything okay? Like, cause I don't usually do that. Um, and my boyfriend was on the boat and he was teasing me. He was <laughs> like, oh my gosh, we've got a dive diva. But it's important to know that you can cancel any dive for any reason. And actually later, um, one of my coworkers told me how much they really admire that about me, that I am yes. willing to cancel a dive because I'm just not, it doesn't feel right. And that's, yeah. that's okay. You don't have to have a good reason. There was no good reason that I didn't go on that dive. The good reason was I didn't feel great doing it. So I just didn't yep. do it. It's a skill. Like we have people cancel a dive and be like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And we're like, the rest of us weren't comfortable enough yeah. canceling it. Like you actually were strong enough to be like, I know my limits and we found them. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm done. And that's like, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's, it's okay to poke fun at each other, and, like, obviously it's almost all we do. Yeah. But then after the fact, be like, you did a really good job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Proud of you. That was the right move. Yeah. Proud yep. of you. I feel like that kind of leads into um, another question we ask a lot on the podcast, but what is your favorite or your best dive water-related story, and why? Oh, my god! And it can be working or not working. It can okay. be a great one or also, like, a really crazy, like, yeah. <laughs> whatever you want. Whatever that means to you. I think my brain immediately goes to, and I'm sure later on I'll be like, I could have said this one or this one, but... Um, You've got so many. <laughs> I know. It's just, uh, this one was so chaotic, and I love telling this story. So, <laughs> Greer, who's one of our colleagues and our friend, um, she studies sponges, and we were on this dive, and a lot of her sites are shallow within the yes. estuary. And so we hit it right at the end of doing the surveys, what we needed to do. Everyone gets back on the boat except for her and I. We're like, we're going to go down. The tide was starting to switch. We're just going to grab some sediment samples. And once we round the corner of the site where the tide was changing, it was just ripping. And we and this would have been a good example of when maybe we shouldn't have done this. But long story short, like to get these samples was me holding on to a rock and holding on to Greer with the other hand as both of our legs are like flying behind us because we're just I'm trying to help her like maintain position, but she needs both hands to collect this sample. Yeah. And we're just fighting it. Like I'm just like like under the water like ah like just pure mayhem it was like being in a wind tunnel but with water and she's just so she's got to like hold her position using me Mm -hmm. without holding on to anything while getting like good sediment cores oh my gosh and like that same exact site we were stuck in a lightning storm too oh Um, i was there yes you were (laughs) that was a chaotic day i was like it's always this site man it's insane but yeah first sight 
We yeah, we legitimately there's no visibility. Like we'd be down there and just like face to urchins on the wall, like just trying to see anything. Oh We're like, gosh. oh, the vis is pretty good here today. Like, <laughs> wow, I can see my gauges on my wrist. Everything's fine. Yeah. No. I saw two fish. <laughs> <laughs> I was startled. (gasps) That same site, too. We were coming up once and just, like, taking our time. No viz, right? Nothing. I could hold my hand just, like, directly in front of my face, and I would struggle to figure out what it is. And, like, I just felt something. So I'm I'm vertical. Hit my shin and stay there. (laughs) And And so I'm looking down, and my brain just starts going... Now, what could this be? Like a manatee? And I'm like taking my time mentally to like peruse through my mental catalog of what could be. Is this a problem or not? I don't know, but still not moving. And it just slowly pushes my leg out of its way until I go, oh, you should remove yourself from this situation and like go up. Like, (laughs) what was it? If I had to guess, I would say a manatee. Like a, like Mm -hmm. it was just big like there was no fin like obviously I had my suit on so I couldn't feel like the texture of whatever it was but and it was like slow moving and it didn't give a darn about me being there so I was just like hmm oh I should go I should leave (laughs) I'm gonna remove myself yeah I was like it it, it was almost like snapping out of being catatonic of just like mentally processing and then going oh no action would be reasonable here and then going (laughs) I should go that's amazing at this site too I think it was before the lightning storm, we mm-hmm. found a baby octopus on one of the scientific instruments, and it yep. was the cutest thing ever, and it was like the size of my pinky finger. It was so tiny and like translucent. It was awfully cute. Oh, We were offended. The marina site is so wild because several times we wanted to like anchor the boat while we were waiting for you guys, because mm-hmm. live boating there is just like, there's there shouldn't be a good reason. Until you anchor and then you realize that the current is completely changing direction all the time. Like it comes around different things and there's eddies and whatever. So like we couldn't reliably keep the boat anywhere. Like we'd anchor and we'd just like spin around it. And I was like, okay, well that's not really a good option. (laughs) So what I'm hearing is that physical oceanographics came into play in this scenario. (laughs) You're right. You're so right, man. Fluid dynamics. Uh, physical valuable. oceanography intersection with diving it's Boom. always there yes. all the time do you think about that a lot when you're diving like wow mm-hmm. the shear in this current is really incredible like yeah and I, yeah. I do that with chemistry too where it's like it's almost like learning a new language yeah where you like once you're kind of thinking or re- realizing where the application goes to you're just like or at least I do reiterate lessons in my head yeah. Where I'm like, if you were to explain this right now, how would you do it? And then... Yeah. But then in the moment, if someone asks me, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> okay. So let's keep moving because I could literally talk with you all day about these stories. <laughs> um, but I want to know, I want the listeners to know, what are some of your passions or hobbies outside of your work? What do you do that isn't just, you know, diving in physical oceanography? What other amazing things are you into? Nothing. Nothing oh, else. No. I don't even want to hear that. <laughs> if I could, I would surf all day, every day. Yeah. I would just be traveling to a different place and surfing constantly. I just want my longboard in tiny waves <laughs> perpetually. Oh, we love it. Yeah. Love it. I painted a lot before this program started, and I miss that a lot. Um, so I think that would also come back into play as, like, you know, getting some 
ink to paper again and my watercolors mm-hmm. and actually I like like I when I used to wake up like excited for it like art used to wake me up like mm-hmm. I would wake up early because I was like I have an idea and I want to get it down and I like I don't know that person anymore but I'm hoping I meet her again whenever this program's over oh that's Just, wonderful yeah surfing and art I love it of you guys do art and it's so amazing oh my gosh i love seeing your pieces sydney it's ocean related art oh god it's so dreamy thank but also you. the logo and everything i'm like thank you oh, yeah get that tattoo excuse me oh lovely yeah anyone want uh, to die for a logo tattoo <laughs> please contact for permission <laughs> <laughs> and send me pictures yes we can post them. Artistic yes. permission first, yes. always. So I guess the next question is, what is your favorite marine organism or critter? I'm not biased. I am biased. I I mean, I've always been obsessed with sharks, but I think at this point in my career, um, it's got to be the grouper. Mm. Oh, yeah. I love them. Goliath or just like any? General, I have worked a lot with red hind Mm. groupers recently we're looking at camouflage groupers in the french polynesia Mm. and i I think they're super interesting and i love that i mean we think of fish as like super simple crits but like the you know these guys are serenids which is a family of fishes and they produce sound and they communicate and they make things happen and like their communication is such a huge part of their ecology Mm -hmm. and i think that's super interesting and that's what we're using to like affect policy to protect them so i do have a special connection to them but i work with a lot of different groupers so it's hard to pick one that's like it's almost like they have a voice for themselves right like using grouper voices like Mm -hmm. amplifying groupers voice that's like amazing that's such a cool it's like oh the scientists are the voice for the for the biology but it's like sometimes they're their own voice sometimes they've got it covered and we just need to listen i love that yeah oh have you been diving with groupers? Okay, so not for my project, but um, Clark Morgan, who is a PhD student here at Harbor Branch, he and the um, fish ecology lab took me out on one of their Goliath grouper dives recently where they were like futzing with some instruments or something like that. And and meanwhile, you were not doing your job. You were just spinning around looking at groupers. <laughs> I'm not crying. I'm not, you know? Saltwater is a great place to cry because nobody has to know. It's just, it's saltwater coming out your face right into the ocean saltwater. Yeah. But then you like go out with Clark and he's just like the most enthusiastic person. So he's like, tell me everything. And he's just like building you up. And so it's, it's fun to have someone like be on a project with someone too, who's just like so enthusiastic. I'm like, we are, this is, this is what we need all the time. I know. We're really trying to get Clark. To come on, on the, the podcast. podcast. Clark. Clark, <laughs> Clark is to dive for. He is to dive for. <laughs> Update. This just confirmed. Clark, the shark, will be on the podcast. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I have a really hard-hitting question, Caroline. Are you ready? I have a hard-hitting answer. Mm, I'm ready. What is objectively the best dive boat snack objectively i'm a sandwich girl Ugh. you know i'm into a good sandwich what what kind of what do you want on your sandwich no one's gonna want to hear this i do so go for it we'll just put a little trigger warning here (laughs) 
it's gross. But <laughs> so whenever um, we were first working with the instruments and I would be like down low on the boat deck and didn't figure out, hey, you should probably figure out your instruments in advance before mm. getting on the boat because mm. why? Physical oceanographers work with generators a lot, which is a lot of fumes. And if mm. you're on a boat deck down low on the fumes, you get really nauseous. Yeah. Um, and so there's been many a pub sub Publix sub, if you're yeah. nasty. Um, Publix sublix. Sublix. A yes. sublix. <laughs> that has left the marina with me and not made it back. Like, <laughs> like I, it's weird because I'm like, well, I here's my reasoning. I have thrown up my pub sub so many times <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that, like, I feel like, well, this, I, know, I don't want to ruin other foods for me. So I'll just stick to the same sandwich. It's this got veggies. Great. It's got honey mustard. It is. It's to die for. It's, it's to die for. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, maybe that'll prevent anyone from wanting a boat sandwich ever again. <laughs> but that's my go-to. I like it. I like it. It's locked Plus, in. I mean, it's always worked for you so far. Yeah. You know, so. Only good things have come from it. That's true. That's true. We're, we're big proponents of taking pub subs on dive boats. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. I also like to, as a woman who is inherently bad luck to bring on a boat, if you listen to lore, <laughs> bring a good banana. Everyone uh, gets so mad. I am anti-banana <laughs> on boats. I am very anti-it. Jimmy Buffett would be proud. <laughs> good. I, I just good. figure... I figure... I don't know. Like, it does it does it eliminate? Do they cross eliminate each other? Or if I'm operating the boat negative. as a woman, is it just like worse if I bring a banana? Is it double bad luck, or is it a double negative where you it's like they cancel positive. each other yeah. out? Well, the, the the banana thing comes from like when boats were wooden and they would the bananas would attract a certain bug Pest, that yeah. would like mm-hmm. just, the boat. yeah. So, but now I like to pick my male counterparts on the boat, hold a banana, and say, "Look at this threat!" Like. <laughs> Just really, really dig it in and drive yeah. it home. Just because I am now the boat pest. Yes. You, you have to deal yeah. with me in all forms. The banana brought you onto the boat. Yeah. Truly. Truly. Yeah. And they should take it out of the banana. Mm. Yeah. Honestly. That's why they're the worst. <laughs> the best worst. Yes. Worst best. Exactly. <laughs> Bananas. Thumbs up. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> we just need to do a little poll on our Instagram story. Bananas on boats, yay or nay. Or in the caption of yeah. this when we release it. Yep. I yeah, I wanna I wanna hear the feedback yeah. on people's takes on the bananas on the boat. Cause I show me the data. We're gonna show settle it. Settle it once and for the all. Carfax. I thrive in chaos and I'm like, look, listen, we've had great success with me having a vagina and having a banana. And <laughs> they go together. It's fine. It's not weird. <laughs> exactly. It's not weird. Oh, I love it. Okay, well, on a completely unrelated note. Left turn. Um, who do you look up to in diving and or marine science? This can be two different people or okay. one person or a myriad of people, whatever you take that Other term. than y'all? Uh, well, if you insist. I mean, kidding. yeah, the I've, my best dive buddies are here. The people that I've learned the most from diving are here. The people who not only take their skills, but do something valuable with them are all here. So like I look up to my colleagues the most. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I do, I do really, really admire Madison Stewart, Shark Girl yes, Madison. I love her. She's a perfect example of someone who can, like, she's connected to the water and her foundations are in that, like, mm-hmm. I want to do something. Most positions require education. There's no time for that. What can I do with what I have now? And still being able to be successful and enact change and use your skills and I think that's super beautiful. That's yeah. something that I admire and want to carry with me. And that's that's why I'm like, I value education. I think academia is little islands of reprieve in some of the world that we live in right now. But I think exploring those alternatives and recognizing that they are there is means a lot to me personally yeah. as yeah. someone who had no idea if they were going to reapproach education at all. Mm-hmm. I think she's largely impactful and I look up to her a lot Hmm. that's wonderful I love that okay second to last question (laughs) how do you think your experiences in the dive industry may have been affected by your gender identity I think especially being in physical oceanography and like Mm -hmm. tying that to my dive experiences there's been many a time where I'm the only female around and every guy is watching whatever minute task I'm doing just to see if I'll mess it up. And they're, they can be, and this is generalizing, but many people I've worked with have been quick to just immediately take something from my hands, like feel comfortable enough to come up and take something from my hands and be like, you're not doing this good enough, I'll do it better. Not recognizing like it has nothing to do with me being a female, Like, it has everything to do with the fact that I'm a student and I want to do something correctly and well and I'm learning. But if you don't give me that opportunity, well, then you get to keep saying, like, you don't do this well enough, I'll do it better. Oh, my gosh, you can't do this. I'll do it better. Like, let's recognize that we all started somewhere. We all weren't perfect at everything we were doing. So I, I feel a little bit more pressure to do things perfectly the first time or I have to hear about it every time Mm -hmm. and I don't know that's it doesn't it doesn't feel great it's it's an inherent driver I think that Mm -hmm. we all like you know it's just a fact that women have to be a little bit tougher in some scenarios in order to be able to not only do a thing properly and correctly but do it under the pressure of scrutiny like additional not necessary scrutiny yep I agree completely that was put (laughs) really well yes. I agree yeah. Yeah. it's unfortunately like all of us can go yep had that experience but yeah. yeah it's it's very interesting to see the dynamic differences you know but yeah and that's not to say that everyone treats you that way but it is a recurring issue yeah, yeah. there was a paper a couple of years ago I saw a presentation and I will either cut this out or add in a side with like actual citations because I don't know off the top of my head who this is or what the exact data was and Mm -hmm. I want to make sure I'm always being accurate. And so as promised here is that aside. Recently a paper in 2018 by Patrick Gall and Mario Pacientini, I might have butchered that, my apologies, um, discussed the publishing rates and different success metrics of advisors and students based on their female-male pairings. And they found that females with male advisors had the lowest publishing rate or productivity rate during their PhD with only about five first author papers weighted by journal impact factor. 
uh, whereas male students with male advisors had significantly higher at 5.9, and female students with female advisors actually had 6.1. So across all of these metrics that they measured, um, it seems as though the same gendered pairings seem to be doing better than the um, either male advisor with female students or female advisor with male students are. So this is just a really interesting uh, look into how gender can play a role and gender identity can play a strong role in your success as a student or as a uh, professional in the field. I thought that was a really interesting article and granted it's old now so like I don't know what the data would be now. I don't know what field specifically it was in. It might be very different based field to field. But I thought that it was a really interesting like concept or study to do. Yeah, I think that can be, I mean, I, without knowing any of the details or anything like that, you know, the, the nature of the study and what they were looking at or what they were using to measure, anything like that, the base thing that I'm hearing is identity matters. Yes. Yeah. Like, and, and this is someone as a female, like, identifying person with a male identifying advisor mm-hmm. who, like, he just supports me and listens and yes. does, you know, I'm very fortunate in what I have. But I think, yeah, there's something to be said for um, how, how much do we understand each other? How much do we work on the differences in communication types and, and yeah. the experience differences? Because I think... Another thing that I've seen being a female in this industry is that uh, it's you're more easily dismissed if you say, this is what I'm experiencing, this is what's happening, this is mm-hmm. what I've noticed, as opposed to being like, wow, what's the cause of this? Or, you know, how do we approach it? It's, oh, well, like, j- let's just find a way to, like, shake it off. Like, oh, but it, it's fine. It's not a big deal. This isn't an issue. And then things don't get approached. And so how limiting can that be? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And even more so potentially, like, even more complexity could be added to this based on different identity or gender identities as well. Like, um, traditionally underrepresented gender identities beyond just male and female as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is something to be considered in this coming age in academia is just the relationships that people are having with one another based on like how that can be impacted by gender identity. Yeah. Yeah. When I say too earlier, like academia is like an island of reprieve or whatever, like for me being, you know, growing up where I've grown up and like differences in like my views and, and social constructs that I identify with relative to my community around me, especially coming out of central Florida can be very isolating. And so hopefully academia can act as like that launch point for change as we see like more inclusivity and the conversation has definitely been ramped up and, you know, like some of our colleagues here where they did the diversity and inclusion um, workshops and training and like again learning how to like shut up and like give a platform to everyone like yeah. like stop yeah. and listen and and learn that we're like communicate differently our needs are different and we can be more effective together if we approach it like not everyone's the same not everyone's going to think the same and not everyone's going to have the same needs or thoughts or whatever yeah then everyone has a seat Well, and not only that, but increasing diversity inherently increases the number of ideas, of unique ideas being brought to our field. Like uh, having a diverse field makes marine science better, makes any science better. It makes people coming to the table with different thoughts, different backgrounds, different ideas about how the world works 
are the only way that we're going to move forward and come up with continually new ideas with new perspectives and not just repeat the exact same things that have been done for hundreds and hundreds of years and the same kinds of questions that have been done for hundreds and hundreds of years. So having um, diverse thought leads to innovation in ways that is, are mm -hmm. going to promote our field for a long time. And I think that is super important and needs to be prioritized. Yeah, 100%. And that leads into what we've been talking about, like throughout this whole podcast about how our experiences here and working with multiple different people on multiple different projects has really accelerated our growth and yep. turned us into better scientists and better people. Yeah, it's, a, it's that layering thing. And then like, you know, only the same people are coming up with the ideas and finding the answers or whatever. We all have inherent bias. Like, yep. Let's not have it be the same bias over and yeah. over. Let's the more we account Randomly for, select our yeah. <laughs> let's randomize who's asking the questions. Yes, absolutely. Like let's you can better represent the variability if we have greater inclusion. Okay. Just saying. Yeah. What keeps you coming back to the water? I think tying it back to the fact that I grew up around the water and have that inherent connection to it is it creates like that sense of responsibility, right? Like the ocean has given me my entire life. Everything, every source of happiness has come from it. Whatever happens with my family, my loved ones, my life, no matter what, that's the only constant that I know. And so when you are that close to it too, and have that sense of inherent responsibility, then you want to give back to it. Whenever you spend so much time around the ocean, then you have no choice but to see also the negative impacts that we have on it as well. And so it's like when I walk the beach, and I see a piece of, piece of trash on the, on the sand. It's not my fault that that trash is there, but if I leave it, it's my fault that it's still there. So maybe we're not responsible for all the issues, but we are all connected to it, whether you see the ocean every day or not. And so I just have, not not only do I go back to it in order to feel happy and feel a sense of, you know, completeness and happiness and, and connection, but also I want to help. That's why I'm here. I love that. That's a really good answer. Thanks. Well, thank you, Caroline, for coming on. Thanks, Caroline. Podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for... Let me hang out with you and wear my natural deodorant and stink <laughs> up the place. Oh, I wouldn't <laughs> rather absorb anyone else's stench. <laughs> Keeps us coming back. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to head on over to our website where you can find information on submitting your great stories for our Fish Tales episodes. Those will come out about once a month and you can find the form to submit your stories online. Our website is under titleteasapparel.com. There's a little header at the top that says to dive for a podcast. And if you hit that link, we also have merch for sale. And you can also find us on Instagram at to dive for podcast and on Facebook as well. Don't forget to like and follow and share with your friends. See you guys next week. Bye. <laughs>
So a bunch of fish come together. And as we mentioned earlier, they use sound. So primarily in grouper, we see this males produce the sound to attract the females into these aggregations, into big groups. And then they will, some species change the call type once they're ready to, like all the females are together, everyone's hot and ready, and then change the call type to then coordinate the simultaneous release of gametes or, you know, eggs and sperm into the water column to reproduce. That's so cool. One of their calls is like, hey ladies, and the other one's like, let's get to business. It's like a sexy orchestra, yeah. Ooh, okay. Fish are hot. (laughs) 